The <clears throat> subject of tonight's uh, talk is uh, the mind's eye. I as in self. And um, I think it's a little more subtle dharma than my last talk, so it may require um, more attention, closer attention to the words, try to get to the experience of what the words are pointing towards. If we, I have heard it um, described uh, that meditation can also be seen as the science of perception. And so it's a little bit from that perspective tonight that the talk is taken. If we look at our perception, we can see that our perceptions are divided into that which is perceived, the world outside, and myself, who is the receiver of those perceptions. And as we look at the world outside, as Jack spoke about last night, we see that it's composed of a lot of things which are finite, which don't last. And my big surprise happened this year. It was my last holding on that. Superman died. <laughs> no more permanence. And as we begin to understand what that means, we see that there is very little security that we can place in things that are finite. <clears throat> and that we look around and we still see that many things allow us pleasure. <clears throat> many things of the world we can touch and reap some sense of pleasure from. <clears throat> and there are other things, of course, which cause us pain. And the effort that we mo mostly lead in living our lives is to try to weight the pleasurable objects uh, on our side and eliminate the ones which won't cause us pleasure and to avoid that. And so we try to surround our things with material goods or relationships or whatever we feel will give us a ground and an environment for pleasure. <clears throat> and then when we look at the other side of the perception, that is the perceiver, me, myself, we see that we feel sort of isolated from this world, somehow distant. And we experience all the moods of that distance, the loneliness. Grief is really a reaction to that area of separation. It's the act of separation itself. It's as if life is happening to me. I am in life, but not of life. Somehow I, I don't feel part of everything. <clears throat> I feel like I have to attack life in order to get something out of it. Like I would a cheesecake. <laughs> so I try to gather the pleasurable objects within my sphere so that I can have a happy me. And when I gather things in, my own sense of who I am becomes surrounded and boundaried by these objects. And my images and my sense of self expands outward and I can bring those in to fill the hole that so many of us feel in our living experience. So as I begin to see that the perceiver and the perception seem to be very divided and very separate, 
I'm thrown back on myself. And I look to see the nature of my experience to see if there's anything satisfactory in it. So I begin to look at myself. Form of meditation, whatever spiritual practice. As Suzuki Roshi says, the arrow of our observations have to be on us. And at first what I see is a world of content because that's the only way I've ever perceived the world. Everything has been in terms of that which is outside of me, the objects which are outside of me. And so when I look inside, all I see is content. I see my anger is due to my mother doing this or that to me, or is my frustration is because of this particular task being dipmo. So it's as if I'm looking at the world when I'm looking at myself. In the next, as our minds quiet down a little more, what we begin to see as we quiet is that we let go a little bit of the content. The content becomes less charged in some cases, in some experiences, becomes less charged. And we get a feeling that I'm seeing patterns arise within me. That when conditions are at a certain, in a certain way, my pattern of frustration or my pattern of impatience or my power pattern comes out. And I begin to see that it's conditional. Some of us find it very interesting when we come and are given a simple task or we're given a task, not simple, to sit and watch our breath, how a lot of self-abuse is imposed on that task. And we begin to see that that's the pattern that follows us not just in that task, but whatever task we have on the outside, whether it's a paper that we're told to write in school or whether it's an assignment that we're given by our boss, the first thing that comes up, given those conditions, is I can't do it, I'm not good enough, or whatever. And so we begin to see that these patterns are conditioned parts of ourselves. And when we begin to focus on patterns as opposed to content, we're really developing an awareness to the relationship to content how we relate to the objects of the world. And so it's actually a quieter mind that sees the relationship, the patterns, as opposed to the content of things. Does this this make sense to And so, again, in my meditation, as I look a little more closely, and in certain environments and certain experiences, I began to even see beyond the pattern to the processes which occur. That is, when I look very closely, I see that the patterns are composed of thoughts and feelings and emotions and self-images and attitudes. And again, this is a little quieter than state of perception, than the state in which I was seeing everything as content or patterns, because I'm beginning to to see now what these patterns are composed of, the composition of these things. And that takes a little quieter mind to be able to see that. And again, it's only situational. Some things will come into the mind in which I can't help but see it in terms of content. It's hard to see thoughts of your mother as just a thought. And so... There is a whole, as I'm speaking here, I'm not speaking about a progression of practice necessarily, but that in some instances we're able to see what was once content as patterns and then processes. Now we're going to move a little deeper still. So let's enjoy the ride together here. Still, even when I'm seeing processes, there is still a sense of me and the process. The real problem hasn't been solved. 
it's still a sense of the world, now in terms of processes or con, whatever, and me as the observer. And basic to our suffering is that sense of not being with things, not being united with things. And we read in books, spiritual books, that that is not the way it, it might be perceived in a different way. And yet, we look around and we don't understand that. And we perhaps reflect or see young children, very young infants, in which there is a real undifferentiated sense of self that the infant has. That somehow the child, when they come out of the womb, doesn't have a sense of self and doesn't seem to have that sense of, of divisiveness between him or herself and the world. There's no set of experiences which has defined me yet for the infant. And there's no information to locate the world. There's no knowledge base. And then as the infant grows the infant acquires knowledge about the world, and with that knowledge comes a sense of themselves in relationship to that world. And usually we think that I am the one who is mastering the world, but in fact the I develops as the world is mastered. So that those two are relative. The more we understand and place information and concepts on the world, the more we have a sense of ourselves in relationship to it. We can also see that the I is dependent upon what I know. In familiar situations, I feel very secure. In unfamiliar ones, there's more confusion and less security. Now, what happens, I think, is that we develop an image across all of this in which we feel either adequate or inadequate. So that if we come into a familiar situation, we feel adequate. we come into an unfamiliar situation, we feel inadequate. And sometimes the feeling of inadequacy becomes our resting place. We become secure in the image. And so it's not so important any longer to fix the world because we've already got it fixed in our emotional relationship to it. And then we carry that sense of inadequacy around with us. So our relationship with experience is really in conflict somehow. It's in confusion. In some ways, we want so much from it. We would love it to be in a way that would give us infinite pleasure. And it's said that in the Buddhist realms there are realms of existences where there is so much pleasure that they are the most lost, the most caught of any of the beings. But we're on a plane in which it's impossible (laughs) to arrange things in that way. And so, even arrange as we try, and we continue to try, all of us continue to try, we want a lot from it, and yet we still, in some ways, we feel contained by it. We feel limited by it. Because it's finite, it's changing, it's not satisfactory. And, and some spiritual insight is in, uh, some people call it the dark night of the soul, where 
you want a lot from the world, and yet at the same time you have the understanding that it isn't providing the kind of satisfaction, and yet the two halves of the mind continue to operate, and there's a darkening sense of despair about it, but at the same time there's not the letting go of it either. And if we look carefully at how we experience things, we see that we have divided things from the inside and outside. Outside of us are the sights and sounds and all of the colors and smells and tastes. And that inside, we have our thoughts and emotions, etc., And we can see that we sometimes intrude upon the outside, color the outside. We color the world of experience outside, and we make it what we want to make it. We make things pleasant. Those things aren't inherent in the things themselves. Or a sound comes in which is noxious, like sneezing or coughing or whatever, as one person was mentioning, and we've made it our minds, our, something from the inside has made that from the outside unpleasant. So that somehow there is a relationship between those two, although it's not real clear as yet in this how that works. But one thing we begin to see is that the inside and the outside are all contained within my awareness. I can be aware of things from the outside, the sounds, can I not, the sights. I can be aware of seeing you. I can also be aware of my internal world, my thoughts, my emotions. And the Buddha said that awareness is the Lord over everything. And by looking carefully at this, I can begin to dismantle what I call me. And when I look at what I call me, I only see experience, right? I mean, look at what we've already seen as me. There's thought, emotion, physical sensation, feeling, attitudes, beliefs. All of that can be experienced by awareness. And when I look at the world, what I see is myself. I see what I make you. I don't see what's actually there. I see what I want to see. I see a bell. But is this bell? So everything from the outside and the inside is experience. Are we moving together here? <laughs> the me, the I, cannot be found except in experience. There's a Buddha story about a man who goes to the Buddha and says, Bhante, reverend sir, what is the locus of the senses? The locus meaning the common ground where all the senses meet. And the Buddha said the locus of the senses is the mind. Right? It's where all the senses meet in, a common, at the, in the mind. And then he said, Bonte, what is the locus of the mind? And the Buddha said, the locus of the mind is awareness. For awareness can see the whole range and whiff of the mind. It's the Lord over everything. Everything that can be perceived is the mind. Where is the I? The eye of experience is in the mind. When we look at the mind, all we see is experience. When we see this conclusively, then experience cannot give me happiness because I am part of the experience. How can I, which is part of the mental process of the mind, 
be satisfied by another mental process of the mind, which takes in the experience So the whole thing, the world and the mind, is contained within the same, and yet we constantly operate as if there was the mind and me. And that somehow I was outside of that, and that through the mind, through the world coming in, I could be satisfied. But is that so? Remembering that the f- anything of the mind is finite because it only contains experience and therefore limited. And anything that is limited is also isolation, isolated and without substance because it's just experience. So why should I struggle to contain or avoid or hold on? when I am also part of that experience? Why should I try to make an experience last when the I is just another form of experience? Now, if awareness can experience myself, then I cannot be that. How can I be something and see it at the same time? If I can be aware of my thoughts, then I cannot be my thought. If I can be aware of my emotion, then I cannot be aware that I cannot be that emotion. And so we begin to understand that awareness of something means that I am not that thing. So how can experience say anything about me unless I mistakenly define myself as being outside of it? Now we're going to get a little bit more into the ramifications of this. Do I think that I'm going somewhere in my practice? How can there be a rival for the eye? There is no rival for the eye. Do I think another experience will somehow confirm my progress? How can another experience confirm anything when it's finite, limited? So this throws me back out of my normal relationships to things. It throws me out of trying to seek for something. Because what am I seeking for? And what is it that's seeking? And it throws me back into understanding what this mind and body experience is. Because it's only through understanding that we can be free of it not through looking for some particular path or experience, no matter how big or wonderful that experience is, how explosive, how full of light. When I was in Burma, I had... um, The Burmese tradition is very uh, systematic with the progression of insights with with lots of different experiences being... um, delineated along the way. And they know where you are on this continuum by the kinds of experiences you're relating in the practice. And yet, at that point, I was beginning to see this as I'm speaking. This isn't theoretical. This isn't coming from some book that I've read. This is, this is, this is available to all of us. And so I was in conflict with what I was understanding and, and the path as it was being laid out. And, and um, the people around me kept saying, oh, their, their minds were full of light and all this stuff was going on. And I was looking around, I couldn't, I didn't, uh, I, mean, I, thought, I just couldn't make sense of why that was so important to anything. And to be able to 
as I was mentioning last talk, not to doubt what we're seeing. You can't doubt it. I don't, even if uh, the Buddha himself were to materialize and say, you're going the wrong way, <laughs> I, you just can't doubt it because uh, it's the only thing we got. So you just, you just have to go the way you see. You have to go according to our own understanding. We can't rely on somebody else to give us that understanding. We just have to go according to what we understand. <clears throat> so I see that the eye arises in relationship to something, always in relationship to an experience. When something is seen or heard, I see, I hear. The eye is experiencing, is experience acknowledging itself. It's as if the mind divides itself to have the experience and it divides itself into the experience of I to have the experience. And so when we sit, sometimes there is a lot going on. Frequently there's a lot going on. And we may be very reactive to it, and there's a big sense of me in relationship to that, content or whatever. And then when our minds are very quiet and very peaceful, there is a small sense, small me, big me, small me, depending upon the amplitude and reaction to the experience that's going on. But still me, and still divisive. We begin to see that it's the mind which separates, distinguishes, and personalizes. It is the mind which, which fabricates the eye so that the world can be experienced by knowing itself. So where does all this leave us? If I and the experience are contained within the mind, a reaction to any aspect of mind or experience is the mind reacting against itself. I don't like this. The I is also part of the experience. I don't like this. It becomes kind of absurd when you see it in this way. The locus of the mind is awareness. By not reacting, we are no longer dividing the I from the experience. When we are still, the mind is whole. It's not divided against itself. And so in stillness, there is wholeness. In non-reactivity, the subject and object come together. It's wholeness. And so there is no conflict, no struggle. Reaction is experiencing, experience separating itself into I. It, awareness is the unifying factor, the factor of oneness. It's the Lord over, I can see everything without a sense of something being the seer. So, why struggle with anything? The ramifications, the implication of of all this, when we see this, is why struggle? When we have an experience, why struggle with it? Why react to it? Why avoid it? Why turn from it? When we understand what we're doing, that it's just the mind dividing itself against itself, then we, it falls flat. Reaction falls flat. It's not me not reacting. It's just that there's no reaction. And then the ego does not become a problem. It's not that we have to do away with the ego or push it away or push away the sense of self 
or delude ourselves or to forget about ourselves. It's just seen for what it is, as another experience of the mind. And therefore, no problem whatsoever in its presence or absence, no problem. We also begin to understand that experience will never reveal who I am because all experience is conditioned, including the I experience. And what changes cannot be the truth. And what I perceive cannot be the truth. And something that may be more relevant We cannot be hurt by what we see. Ultimately, all expressions of mind are safe. And it's just the generation of fear, generating fear, the fear component of mind, that is the divisive quality that makes it unsafe. The other thing we understand is that no experience will prove who I am. The most we can do is to see who we are not. I am not my thoughts. I am not my emotions. I am not my attitudes. I am not the observer of all these things because that can be experienced as well. The most we can see is who we are not. How can we possibly see who we are? Because if we did, it would just be another experience. So we discard all experiences as saying anything relevant about who we are. All progressive steps are gone. Won't fall into that anymore. All reactions to any experience, any grasping or pushing away, just leads to a divided mind. So my mind is still. It won't react because I have seen what is the nature of reaction and how it separates me from everything else. So reaction is gone. All that is experienced is not me. It cannot be. The eye of the mind is seen and understood. No movement. For any movement just creates another experience. It creates the mind's eye. All I can do is be still. I was walking through an old growth forest in Seattle. They have some beautiful parks there. And I came around a bend just really communing with things in stillness. I came around a bend and I heard this loud speaker blaring a gospel singer who was out gospelizing. And she was singing, Be still and know you are God. (laughs) The irony was, of course, that there was no stillness in her blaring. Be still and know you are God. In that unfractured mind, There is union. Now, I didn't finish the story about the Buddha, the man who came to the Buddha, and he said, what's the locus of the senses? And the locus of the senses, the Buddha said, was the mind. And then the man asked, what's the locus of the mind? And the Buddha said that the locus of the mind was awareness. And then the man said, what's the locus of awareness? And the Buddha said, nirvana. When there are no objects, 
In that stillness, the eye vanishes and the mind falls away. For the mind only has its reality in the separation of things. And without that, there is something else. Can we sit for a minute? So are there any questions? Or... Yes, huh? <laughs> yes. I certainly do. I certainly do. And the, and the place it has is that it comes from stillness. That voice, when listened to, is the heart. And the heart I use in this way, meaning the unifi- <coughs> the, that which is, the unif- God, okay? It, it's that which is. And that voice, that voice comes out of stillness. It doesn't come out of thinking what you need to do. I mean, if it comes out of thinking what you need to do, it's it's very much at the level of experience. But it comes out of, of stillness into experience as a guiding factor for us, as a feeling of rightness. It's the heart steering itself towards completion is another way of putting it. And it's the only thing that we have to listen to. Yes? I understand the general drift of what you say, and I get tangled up with at least one of the words, uh, particularly the word awareness, which I think I heard you say, and I think I can comprehend as both being divisive and unifying. I am aware Mm -hmm. of is divisive, and the location of uh, <clears throat> the mind and awareness and nirvana being unified. Could you pull the word awareness apart for me, please? I can't because it's basic. But what I can say is that the I who is aware of something, neither one of those is awareness. Those are both experiences. The thing that is between that is awareness. And it's basic. Is love and awareness identical? Identical. I have a, a question. A similar kind of thing, a word that I have 
some difficulty with. I think of it in my own life and in the life of most folks as an addiction. And it's uh, the addiction to what we refer to as understanding. Uh, it seems, this is my experience in this culture, is that understanding is held in a very, very high place. One of the most loving things I can say to you is, I understand. <laughs> yes, it's a, that's a nice point. Um, it's held very highly. Yeah. And yet it seems divisive. Mm -hmm. Because it's always, it strikes me, that it's always contextual. Mm -hmm. That it always is somehow both creating and fostering a context, which implies for me barriers. Yes. Yes. So I, I guess what I'm asking you to do is um, talk a little bit about understanding as I right. described it. Apparently we agree. Right. And awareness. Right. Um, the mind uses itself to let go. It uses it uses its perceptions to let go. And that's what insight meditation is all about. That is, I see that things change. I come to that, that, that I see that. And it's for the ego that I see that. The ego is the, is the recipient of that understanding. And it's only through the experience of actually seeing those things that it can let go. Not through being told, because that's its source of fire. That's its source of nutrition is conceptual, but the experience of it actually has its impact on it. Now, at some point in practice, you can live, th and, it's, and I've, I think this is one of the corruptions of insight, is that you can start living upon what you have understood in the past tense, which is another form of knowledge. And at that point, it becomes just another experience of relationship at a more subtle level and becomes a bondage or, or a, a block to further development. But in the end, understanding has to go as well. Because as you mentioned, Michael, understanding is dualistic. It's something that's understood. And the understanding itself... It's a good drug. It's a, it's a very important drug. It's, it's essential. It's essential. It's the stick that Ramana Maharshi talks about, and then you have to throw the stick in. But it's essential to the development of, of ourselves. I mean, I, I think it's essential to all spiritual practices. I can't conceive of a spiritual practice in which it can be effective that doesn't involve understanding. It's really all there is in spiritual practice. Yes? Mm -hmm. sort of extending implication is that practice, and there are many good practices, they bring us to understanding, they are of understanding. Right. In some sense, it, it almost comes to a point where the practice too has to fall away. Yes. Yeah. And that faith, mm -hmm. we never hear any of the Right. Well, actually, Buddhism, uh, the Buddha talked about that when he talked about it in terms of the raft. He, the, uh, he said uh, you, you, you use the raft or the practice to go across, and then you get off the raft and, and move on. And, and the Zen tradition, it's, I really love the um, ox herding, uh, is that what it's called? Ox herding uh, series. Because the la there's, you know, there's everything being blown apart in this big zero, and then there's just a man standing there going into the marketplace and with absolutely nothing, carrying absolutely nothing, no practice, nothing. He is just totally and truly himself. Um, when the hammer hits your finger, it's hard to say, I'm not this experience. And it's hard to be still in that experience. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. <laughs> it's another thought of your mother. 
<laughs> I'm not making this easy. This is not supposed to be a, you know, the, the uh, easy, lazy man's guide to enlightenment. This, is, this talk is not easy. And, and that, the, that has its perfect place. I have to be able to find my way home at, you know, after work, and I have to be able to function in the world. And to be able to function in the world, I have to have a knowledge base, which means that the sense of self comes up in relationship to everything. But it doesn't have to be a problem. When it's seen for what it is, it's not a problem. That's really important because we're so, I think our unworthiness and self-doubt is so finely tuned, especially in this culture, that we just can't believe that we can't have to, that we're stuck in this thing and that we can't get out of it for salvation. That somehow, you know, I can't become something and then I'll be saved. I can't, I have to first become something other than what I am and then liberation. But it, uh, it won't work that way. And we'll be lost for eons in seeking if we think of it that way. There's a, uh, most of you are aware of the inquiring mind uh, issues, and they have an issue out now on the teachers of the non-dual. And, and Vipassana, in one letter, was described as a very kind of systematic, uh, seeking, goal-oriented process, and it's not. Vipassana means, in its root, special seeing, vipassana, special seeing or insight. And that's what it means. All the forms and expressions are often the product of the ignorance of the people who gave them to us. And unless the teacher has the ability to offer that form in its complete text, which is also to end the form, the students can get lost in the form as just being an an endless pursuit of, uh, of working our salvation out. Instead of seeing. The seeing is the working out. Seeing things clearly. Am I stepping on any toes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, it's different, uh, I, I'll just use the terms as I use them. Some people use them interchangeably. Uh, mindfulness to me is, um, is very subject-object oriented. You know, I am mindful, I pick up, and, and there's, a, there's a sense of, of um, self and other. Awareness is, I use it as a more encompassing form of that, that sees the self and object in its total package, that it's not a product of practice. Mindfulness is a product of mind. You can generate and cultivate mindfulness of the ability to pay attention. Awareness is essential to the mind itself. It's fundamental to the mind itself. It's fun- like love is fundamental. And, and that, but, but mindfulness contains awareness as the medium through which it operates, you might say. That's my own. And consciousness traditionally is, is known as the the knowing factor. It's the, it's the factor which knows that you're where you are in wherever the mind is making contact. Yes? Um, oh, thank you for the beautiful talk. Um, so how... What to do? Um, <laughs> <laughs> You, you see, I'm, and this is, yes. Right. Um, first, the notion of getting rid of it needs to be examined. 
of getting rid of the observer because you'll never notice the observer in its totality as long as there's infighting, as long as there's struggle, because then you'll be at the level of experience, working with experience, against experience like that. You have to give up the struggle that the observer is a problem, and then awareness sees the observer when there is the absence of struggle. See, it's only thing we've tied awareness down, we've limited it down to the, the struggles of, of our understanding, to the this and that and you and me. And, but once it's freed of the struggle, it's infinite. Yes, last question? Yes. I mean, I hate to comment on somebody else's words, but what they mean to me is that when our heart is open to something, there is awareness and there is the communication flow, the learning between myself and that other. And so a love or the ability to allow things to be as they are, and awareness of that, is understanding. It is understanding. There's not, there's not something else that's understanding. The, you don't have, we don't have to work on understanding. Understanding is there in our presence. You know, it's like anger. When we're angry at someone, our heart is closed and we're lost in our self-righteousness, and there's no communication. But as soon as we can open our heart to what that other person's position was, then there is love, understanding, and the absence of anger. I don't know if that's helpful. Um, walking period? <laughs> <laughs>